basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. As we discussed last time, the end of 1965 had been a pretty busy time for the Gemini program. Almost everyone on the program was feeling pretty good about where things stood. The flight control team was coming off the high of actually managing to support two full Gemini spacecraft on orbit for the first time, and to have successfully managed the planning and execution of the first ever rendezvous of two spacecraft on orbit. The flight crew were riding high on the success of having had two separate crews, four astronauts, on orbit at the same time, and of having completed the rendezvous and an extended period of station keeping for the very first time. Um, You know, I think we probably should not underestimate the effect, by the way, of having had four astronauts that had actually been able to uh, see and wave at each other uh, from separate spacecraft. Uh, As a milestone in human spaceflight, I think this may often be underestimated. We are, after all, a social species, and spaceflight, until this time, had actually been a pretty lonely experience. With one, two, or uh, occasionally three humans confined to a single small tin can and separated from the rest of humanity by the vacuum of space. The rendezvous of Gemini 6a and 7 was the first time that one group of space travelers could look out their window and see another set of space travelers in their spacecraft. I think in some ways that must have been kind of a profound experience, actually. Uh, You know, making space feel a little bit less like the final frontier to borrow a phrase from later in the decade, and more like, um, I don't know, the future home of humanity? After all, one of the enduring tropes of science fiction was not just sending a single rocket away from Earth, but in fact establishing human colonies out there. I think that the very first rendezvous of two human vessels in that endless sea was more of a concrete step in that direction than anyone realized at the time, maybe. At any rate... The flight crew was also feeling good about the fact that the American astronaut corps had now, in total, more than a man-month, and yes, they were all still men at that point, had more than a man-month in space, and that everyone who had gone to space had come home safely, and even those that had spent an extended period of time in space had not suffered any lasting ill effects. Gemini program management was feeling pretty good, because they not only had been able to check all of their big boxes after just half of their flight program, but they also would have been justified in feeling like their organization had demonstrated that it was capable of dealing with some pretty significant contingencies, and it had still been able to find a way to success. Even NASA's senior management was in a good humor, because the Gemini program had generated a lot of good and very public news. NASA's stock was riding high with the public, which meant that it was also riding high with the administration and with Congress. And since, in combination, those two places were where the money came from, that was not an insignificant achievement. 
And most of the NASA subcontractors, Martin for the booster, McDonnell for the spacecraft in particular, were feeling pretty good. Their work had been validated by significant success on orbit, but they too had demonstrated that they were capable of absorbing the shocks of a high-profile, high-value, high-stakes program and still getting results. Their customer was happy, and more to the point, their customer had come to trust and rely on them as an integral part of a successful team. Um, Those of you who have not been there will just have to take my word for the fact that that is a good thing. Now, I say most of Gemini's contractors were feeling pretty good in January of 1966, but not all of them. In our focus on the Spirit of 76 mission and the impressive achievement that it represented, we've kind of forgotten about one group of people for whom November and December of 1965 were not a cause for celebration. And this, of course, is the Agena program. This was because it was the failure of the Agena spacecraft on its way to orbit that had ignited the whole Gemini 76 project. And while the lemonade that NASA had undoubtedly made out of that pile of lemons uh, that Life and the Agena project had handed them, and while that lemonade had tasted pretty good, that didn't mean that Agena was off the hook. So, to briefly review the Agena program, I know we've probably covered some of this in previous episodes, but it's worth remembering some of the salient points again, as they really do matter in how things eventually played out. The Agena, or to give it its full name, the Atlas Agena Target Vehicle, was supposed to be the target vehicle that the Gemini spacecraft was to rendezvous with. It was an unmanned vehicle that consisted of an Agena upper stage rocket, to which was attached a rendezvous section which was equipped with a docking collar that would allow the Gemini capsule to mate with it. It was selected because the Agena rocket stage itself had a long and successful history, having been used by the United States Air Force as an upper orbital insertion stage for literally dozens of satellite launches. To make use of this flight heritage, the whole idea was to use the proven system off the shelf, pretty much exactly as it had been being used by the Air Force, except for a few small changes that NASA needed. By the way, if you didn't sense the irony and foreshadowing in that statement, you probably should have, because, of course, those small changes had been and would be the source of big problems. And part of the issue, of course, had been and was the whole project management structure of the Agena program. NASA's prime contractor for the Atlas Agena target vehicle was the United States Air Force, which provided both the booster and the spacecraft. The Air Force managed Lockheed, who was responsible for the Atlas booster. Lockheed managed the major subcontractors, including Bell Aerospace, who was responsible for the Agena rocket section. This arrangement had been giving the Gemini program office fits pretty much from day one. Most of the reasons why would be obvious to anyone who's familiar with big, complex projects, but just to enumerate them in detail, NASA's prime contractor was the Air Force, a government agency, not a company. The prime contractor, therefore, had ways and means of accessing managers in NASA's chain of command well above the Gemini Project Office, which they did, at strategic moments, make use of. This did not endear them to the Gemini Project Office. The Air Force project managers did this, in part, 
because they felt that as experienced managers of major procurement projects, they knew more than NASA did about the process, and they objected to being asked, or told, to do things that NASA the NASA way instead of the Air Force way. Uh, there are lots of ways in which NASA's approach differed from the Air Force, but probably the most important one, for our purposes here, was that NASA tended to integrate its contractors much more into project operations than the Air Force did. The Air Force model was essentially to buy a product, including all of the data needed to operate it, and then go off and use it. If there were issues with performance, or if major maintenance or upgrades were needed, the product was returned to the contractor and then reaccepted when the new work had been completed. In contrast, NASA had a much more intimate relationship with its contractors. NASA expected contractors to deliver the products according to specifications, yes, but it also expected them to participate in not only commissioning them, but they expected the contractors to directly support the NASA personnel who operated the spacecraft by briefing them and training them, and also by participating in simulations and even actual flights as second-line engineering support. In short, NASA saw contractors as part of the team, all the way from design to mission complete. Now, this had some significant advantages for contractors. As I noted before, when they performed as part of the team, they had a customer that trusted and relied on them, and that meant that everyone was motivated to continue to find ways to work together. The flip side of the coin, however, was that when things were not going well, NASA program management expected to be pretty directly involved in the troubleshooting and problem resolution process. NASA's perspective was that since its personnel would be on the front line when the spacecraft was on orbit and the fate of the astronauts on board and the fate of the program was at stake, they not only wanted to know that something had been tested and worked, they wanted to know all about how it had failed, how it had been fixed, and why. This level of scrutiny was completely outside of the experience of most United States Air Force contractors. The contractors that worked directly for NASA had gotten used to it. Lockheed and Bell had not. This meant that when the Agena had struggled, and it had struggled, NASA program management was not able to get the level of detail that it was used to getting on how the problems were being diagnosed and rectified. This meant that NASA program management, frankly, didn't trust these guys the way they trusted their other contractors. Um, the Lockheed, and particularly the Bell Aerospace guys, were not on the team in the way the other NASA contractors were. It's important to understand that history and that dynamic to understand how things eventually played out over the next couple of missions. If you want an example of why that matters, let's take a look at the immediate aftermath of Gemini 6. Recall that this was the flight on the 25th of October 1965, and it was supposed to be the first rendezvous mission. But when the Agena spacecraft, having separated from its Atlas booster, went to start its own engine to insert the Agena into orbit, it had disintegrated, forcing the cancellation of the mission with the Gemini astronauts still sitting on the pad. Now, less than 24 hours after that event, senior managers from McDonnell were in Bob Gilruth's office, pitching a plan to save the mission by combining it with Gemini 7. Where were the Agena managers? Well, they were still at the Cape, 
presenting to the Agena Flight Safety Review Board, attempting to explain what might have happened to Agena, and also attempting to learn what they would have to do if they were going to get back to flight status. Now, we've already talked about how the push for the Gemini 76 mission went, so let's now follow the other story and see what Agena was doing while the rest of the Gemini program was making history. To put it bluntly, their life was maybe a little bit more mm, prosaic. As anyone who has ever participated in a failure investigation will attest, it can occasionally be high-profile work, but it would seldom be described as exciting or inspiring. In general, it consists of patient, careful analysis and reanalysis, followed by even more careful testing and documentation, followed by re-examination and retesting. Failure examinations are all about asking questions and about, frankly, doubting the answers until they can be proven. Because there is often a lot riding on the conclusion, and because the results will inherently imply judgment of somebody's prior work and decisions, it is also essential that the analysis and testing be carried out with absolute objectivity and accuracy. Failure investigations, in other words, are times when really good engineering and really good engineers are needed. Given the four layers of management that had to be involved in the Agena Flight Safety Review, I can only imagine what it was like for the engineers who worked on it. Fun was probably not a word they would have used. In the end, they did some really good work, though. They eventually decided that the problem stemmed from one of those um, small modifications that had been made to allow Agena to meet the Gemini program requirements. And this was the requirement for multiple engine start restarts. You see, normally the Agena engine was used as an upper stage engine for satellite deployments. This meant that it had to be started once or maybe twice to insert the satellite into orbit and possibly to refine or circularize that orbit. Gemini, however, wanted to use the Agena rocket as an orbital maneuvering engine for the Gemini capsule once it had docked with Agena. The program had plans to run a number of tests, including flying to orbits much higher than the Gemini spacecraft could get to using its own thrusters. This was going to require the Agena engine to fire up to 15 times and to burn for much longer than was usual when it was used in its normal role. When the Bell engineers looked at the requirements, they saw a problem. The normal procedure they used for starting the engine was to fill the combustion chamber with oxidizer, and then to introduce the fuel gradually because the reaction would start as soon as the fuel and oxidizer mixed. This was the safest way to initiate ignition, but it was also wasteful because a good deal of oxidizer would end up being expelled without actually mixing with the fuel. The engineers were worried uh, that it was wasteful enough that they didn't have enough oxidizer on board to go through the process 15 times and still have enough oxidizer to meet the burn requirements that NASA had specified. So the procedure was changed such that the fuel would be introduced into the chamber before the oxidizer. Because of the nature of the reaction, the fuel was far less likely to be wasted by incomplete combustion. But it also increased the po possibility of a hard start which is kind of a rocket engineer's expression for things getting started with a bang, meaning that ignition is far too um, uh, energetic, 
meaning too energetic to be contained by the combustion chamber, meaning the rocket blows up. Now, the new start procedures had been checked, but crucially, to save time or money, both of which were in short supply on Agena in the summer and fall of 1965, or for whatever reason, the tests were performed only up to a simulated altitude of about 39,000 meters, but not at the simulated altitude where the engine actually operated, which was more like 75,000 meters. After looking at the data, the Bell and Lockheed engineers concluded that, in fact, at those altitudes, the new start sequence had become um, problematic and that that had caused the destruction of the rocket. By mid-November, the lower-level review boards had agreed with the Bell and Lockheed engineers that this explanation looked like the most likely source of the problem. They required that Agena come up with a fix that would go back to the oxidizer-first start sequence, and that they prepare a test plan to test that fix at altitudes above 75,000 meters. NASA also requested a series of other tests, including sea-level ignition tests to generate data on engine firing characteristics, because NASA wanted its own engineers to review this data independently. Reports were all due back to senior NASA management by the first week of March, which would give NASA one week to decide whether or not to use Agena on the next Gemini mission, Gemini 8. This would have been a challenging testing program at the best of times, but it was made more challenging because, first of all, the only facility available for doing the high-altitude tests was the Air Force's Arnold Engineering Development Center in Tennessee, and it was booked solid doing testing for the Apollo program. Worse yet, in a further demonstration of NASA's concerns over the program, NASA also announced that before it would accept the next Agena spacecraft for the mission, they would need it to undergo a full static test firing at the Kennedy Space Center. This, effectively, was NASA saying that it was not prepared to believe that it had taken delivery of a working unit unless it was fully demonstrated under their supervision. The problem for the Agena program was that there was really only one engine firing test team and they could not be doing tests in Tennessee at the same time as they were doing full static tests in Florida. There just didn't seem to be enough time to get it all done. Besides, they really didn't see the purpose of doing a full static test firing in Florida. The unit had already undergone all of its qualification and acceptance test burns before it was delivered. NASA remained unconvinced, but agreed to accept a written report on the pros and cons of a test firing before making a final decision. There was also added pressure on Agena because throughout this whole process, Gemini and NASA management were seriously considering their options with respect to Agena. And that's because McDonnell Aerospace, remember them, had helpfully taken a look at the problem and had offered a potential solution that would not require using the Agena upper stage engine that was the source of the problem and the uncertainty. Essentially, McDonnell was proposing taking the docking adapter from the Agena, which they were building, and combining it with the Gemini Reentry Control System module, which they were building, to make a docking target vehicle that didn't use the Lockheed Agena rocket. The argument was that this was actually all hardware with flight heritage, or at least it was all hardware that had undergone testing for flight. 
So this was not, and I say again not, a developmental program. And so it was dubbed the Augmented Target Docking Adapter. NASA liked the idea and approved its development in parallel with the Agena engine testing. Now, I feel like I need to pause here and just take a look at what just happened. I want to emphasize that almost all of what I'm about to say is pure speculation. And, well, it almost feels like gossip. But I have lived in this world long enough to spot some really juicy, juicy pieces in this whole story. Now, it's normally glossed over in very technical terms by all of the official histories. And I really do think, though, that there is a lot more going underneath the surface here than is normally discussed. Because throughout the discussion of the space program, um, the rivalries and the politics at play rarely get discussed. And the rivalries and politics between the NASA and the United States Air Force are hinted at, but never really fully explored. The rivalries between the contractors are not really discussed at all. Unless the 1960s was totally different than the world of business that I grew up in, they were definitely there. Seriously. I mean, here you have Lockheed, a large aircraft company, and let's face it, a bit of a darling child of the U.S. Air Force, then as now, who has a rocket that is struggling and who has managed to uh, blot their copybook fairly uh, significantly with NASA. The up-and-coming agency that is spending more and more money on projects that are capturing more and more public attention. And you have McDonnell Aircraft Company, also a large aircraft company and a significant competitor with Lockheed across the spectrum of military and civilian aerospace, who is, let's face it, the golden-haired child of the NASA program. They have been with NASA pretty much from the beginning and have basically been the prime contractor for every spacecraft that NASA has gotten into space so far. McDonnell has a well-deserved reputation for working closely with NASA and of finding ways to get the job done and is fresh off the triumph of basically having suggested the whole Gemini 76 plan that turned the mess of lemons that Lockheed's booster had dumped on NASA into some pretty sweet lemonade. And oh look! They helpfully come forward with a solution to the on-orbit target problem that manages to completely cut out any contribution from Lockheed, maximizing the contribution from McDonnell. In fact, McDonnell went so far as to contact General Dynamics, who made the Atlas booster, and ask them if they could get the ATDA into orbit without the need for the Agena upper stage. The Atlas folks ran the numbers and confirmed they could. I pause for a moment to point out, at this point, that GD was a subcontractor to Lockheed on the Atlas Agena program that was being run by the Air Force, and that McDonnell did not ask Lockheed, they asked General Dynamics directly. And not only that, they presented the solution as flight equipment, even though it was not a design that had ever actually even been assembled before, and NASA wholeheartedly agreed with that characterization. If you were a senior executive at Lockheed, what would you be thinking? If you were a program manager at the Air Force, what would you be thinking? And then NASA management comes forward with an additional test requirement that virtually guarantees that your program won't make schedule? Well, let's just say I've never seen any official source that draws any attention to this whole episode as being part of a larger competition between Lockheed and McDonald. 
But let's just say if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, to me. I also add for your consideration that Lockheed, almost alone, of large aerospace defense contractors at the time, had almost no major part in any NASA programs during the Apollo program, or even much after that, which is not proof of anything, but it is interesting. At any rate, as the calendar raced towards the expected launch date in early March, there was definitely a feeling that there was a horse race going on between the McDonald solution and the Agena. And I'm pretty sure which solution was seen as having the inside track in that race. The situation certainly had the effect of causing the Agena folks to get their pencils out and resharpen them, at least in terms of exactly how much work needed to get done and how fast they could do it. One thing they definitely concluded was that a static test firing was not required. The Agena program submitted their memo to NASA on the subject and concluded that, in fact, static test firings were mostly a training opportunity for the launch control team and not really a useful stress test of the hardware. And this, in fact, makes some sense. But I can't help but think that it was interesting that it took someone almost 20 flights of Mercury and Gemini boosters to come to that conclusion. 20 flights in which static tests were the norm, uh, the wholly government-funded norm, I would add. Once again, interesting. At any rate, all of that speculation notwithstanding, with the relief from the static test firing, the Agena team managed to win the horse race, or I suppose it is more precise to say they managed not to lose it. McDonald effectively won as well because NASA approved the work for producing a full-flight article of the new uh, target docking adapter, even though it was not in the end scheduled to fly. On Gemini 8, anyways. It went into storage as a backup. And speaking of Gemini 8, last episode uh, we talked a bit about the new reality at NASA as Gemini was joined at the front of the queue by the Apollo program and the effect that that was going to start having on the availability of resources to support Gemini. This new reality was brought home over January and early February as the Gemini program and NASA tried to finalize a launch date for Gemini 8. You see, Apollo 201, which was the first test of a Saturn 1B booster, was scheduled for early February. That in itself didn't pose a conflict with the Gemini schedule, as Gemini 8 was not due to launch until early March at the earliest. At least it didn't pose a problem in terms of use of the pad or any of the resources at KSC. And since it was an uncrewed suborbital flight, it wasn't going to put much demand on flight control resources or on the crew. But as planning progressed, it became apparent that there was another potential conflict. It turned out that Apollo 201 needed the services of the Rose-Not-Victor telemetry and control ship, and it needed the Rose-Not-Victor to be in the Atlantic uh, for the mission. But the same ship, the Rose-Not-Victor, was needed in the northern Pacific for Gemini 8, uh, and the Rose-Not-Victor was not exactly a rapid-response vessel. Someone realized that if the Apollo 201 mission was delayed for more than about a week, it might actually be touch-and-go whether it, the Rosenot Victor could redeploy in time from its Apollo task to its Gemini one. It actually required a decision from senior NASA management that, in the event of a conflict, Gemini 8 would have the priority. In the end, there was no conflict, 
but it was a sign that things were getting a bit more complicated. Other more subtle but long-term signs of strain were also starting to appear. Uh, we discussed lap last episode that in addition to launch facilities, one of the other main groups that was increasingly being shared uh, were the Flight Operations Directorate people. This fact came home in early 1966 when Chris Kraft officially transitioned off of Gemini so that he could spend all of his time getting ready for Apollo and getting Apollo ready. This meant that Gemini 8 would represent a new milestone, and actually kind of an important one. It would, in fact, be the very first time that someone other than Chris Kraft had been the lead flight director for a mission. In fact, it would be the first mission for which he would not be in mission control at all. Just let that sink in for a minute. Since the very first uncrewed Mercury-Redstone mission, one man had been in control of NASA's mission control operations, and that was Chris Kraft. He was, in fact, the only flight that many flight controllers and crew had ever known. This was clearly a measure of just how much Apollo had risen in priorities inside NASA, and was also another clear measure that NASA had grown far beyond being simply a one-program agency. In fact, Kraft's uh, departure left the Gemini program temporarily short of flight directors. For Gemini 8, they actually decided to go with a two-shift schedule, with John Hodge and Gene Kranz as flight directors. Uh, as Gene Kranz uh, later said, quote, This was the dumbest staffing decision we ever made. With the planning, training, mission reviews, and the press conferences, by the time we were ready to fly, we were flat-out exhausted. The two-shift arrangement, however, fitted in with the Agena's staffing because they only had two teams of controllers, unquote. Now, I have actually worked a 12-hour shift schedule in MCC, and I can confirm this assessment. In the end, since it was only supposed to be a three-day flight, it was probably decided that it was doable at least once. It was the last time that NASA tried it, though. I will also point out, though, that it probably didn't do anything to endear the rest of the flight control team to Agena. Now, the astute of you uh, may note my continuing use of foreshadowing with respect to Agena's place within the Gemini program. As the saying goes, this song ain't over yet, not by a long shot. But the actual uh, Gemini 8 flight, which will also feature the first flight of a new NASA astronaut, a decorated Navy combat pilot and a civilian test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base who had already flown the X-15 to the edge of space and who would, in fact, be the first human to walk on the moon. That story uh, is going to have to wait until the next episode. Uh, so in the next episode, we'll get Gemini 8 launched and we'll also get Neil Armstrong off the planet for the first time. But that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.